0: Well, good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Last week we saw Jesus heal a blind man in two stages. So that's kind of strange and irregular. That's not generally the way that Jesus heals people. First, when Jesus touches him, the man has blurry vision he sees men walking as trees and then after Jesus touches him again he's healed completely and we saw last week that as Jesus has compassion on this blind man he's actually painting a parable for the disciples to see this is to give the disciples a picture of where they're at you know they see Jesus they perceive him and yet they don't yet they're not where the Pharisees are at. The Pharisees have hearts full of hatred and unbelief. They reject Jesus. They're not there, but they don't yet see him for everything that he is. And I've talked before about the way that Mark likes to have sandwiches. And here's another one of those sandwiches. We've got this story of them on the ocean, on the Sea of Galilee, I should say, where they they don't believe that they're arguing with one another about the fact that they got one loaf of bread when Jesus has just multiplied bread and their minds are stuck there they don't see what Jesus is saying to them and now we'll see another episode where yes they see and yet they're not quite there yet Peter gets it so right today and yet he gets it so wrong and we'll see the patience and teaching of Jesus here let's read in Mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 33 and we'll be reading one of the high points of Mark's gospel. This is one of the turning points and one of the significant texts in this book that we've got to see here. I'll start reading in verse 27 of Mark 8. And when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, uh, and, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful in all your ways. And your work may span hundreds and thousands of years, but you are working. And the thing that you promised, you will bring about. And we bless you, Father, that you have sent your son Jesus, the Christ, into this world for us. We pray that this morning you would give us hearts to see Jesus. That you would help us to commit ourselves, to to entrust ourselves afresh to this Jesus whom you have revealed and whom you have given for us and for our salvation and for our life day by day with you. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, I think Mark is calling us to accept Jesus as the Christ, both crucified and risen. And as we work through here, we'll see the call in verses 27 to 30 to accept Jesus as the foretold Christ and in verse 31 to 33 to accept Jesus as the humiliated and exalted Christ. Let's look at verses 27 to 31st here. So after healing this blind man, Jesus goes with his disciples, says here, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Where is this at? Where exactly is Jesus going? Remember, so far, for the majority of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. So in the northern area of Israel, the area of Caesarea Philippi is in what in the Old Testament was called Bashan. You remember that? It's on the east side of the Jordan River, kind of north. It's where uh, Og lived, and it's where he reigned. The people of Israel took this away from the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River. This is by Mount Hermon, uh, and by the base of Mount Hermon, one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River flows out. Uh, this is northeast of Galilee, and this area is predominantly Gentile, though there are Jews there as well. Uh, it's in modern day uh, in the area of the Golan Heights. Uh, this this place, Caesarea Philippi, had only come by this name recently, as of this story. Uh, Herod the Great, you'll remember who killed the infants in Bethlehem after Jesus was born, uh, he had a son, and his son's name was Philip. Philip named this city after himself. That's where we get the Philippi from. Uh, and you know, Herod, the, the many Herods were intent on honoring themselves. Um, but Philip also wanted to honor the Caesar. So he wanted to add Caesar's name to it, so it became basically Caesar's Philippi, which is what we get with Caesarea Philippi. Uh, And it's as Jesus and his disciples are passing through this area, they're not in Galilee at this point, they're passing through this area and, and Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? As they're walking along, he asks them this question. And the disciples begin to answer Jesus with the things that they've heard. You know, some say he's John the Baptist. Uh, Of course, this was Herod's response. You remember a few weeks ago, or maybe it's been a month or two now, uh, Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And when he heard about the miraculous deeds that Jesus was doing, he said, surely this is John the Baptist whom I beheaded, who's been raised from the dead. Well, that's not right. We know that. Uh, Other people said that, well, he's Elijah. And, and that's quite a compliment, to be honest, to be called Elijah. Elijah was a significant figure in the Old Testament. He was caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire and didn't die. And two of the last verses in the, book of the, old, in the old Testament, in the book of Malachi, talk about Elijah coming back in the great day of the Lord. People had expectation that Elijah was coming. And so some people thought that Jesus was Elijah, well, that's a pretty significant thing to attribute to Jesus. Well, others thought that perhaps he was one of the prophets, one of the Old Testament prophets come back, or maybe even a new prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And so with these common ideas on the table now, the field of possibilities on the table, Jesus gets personal with his disciples here. He says, who do you say that I am? You know, that is the most important question that any human being can be faced with. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And it's a question that Jesus asks his disciples here. Like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky, Peter answers rightly. He says, you are the Christ. Peter gets it. He is the first human being in Mark's gospel who calls Jesus the Christ. Now the demons understand who Jesus is, uh, but people haven't gotten it. Peter is the first one to, to get onto this, and he sees it. He sees Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the Christ. Now, what exactly does that mean? To call Jesus the Christ, what does that mean? Now, the title Christ is one of the most important titles of Jesus. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is God's Messiah who will fulfill God's promises to save God's people. Jesus being the Christ means that he is God's Messiah, who will fulfill God's promises to save God's people. Now, the titles Messiah, I've just mentioned, and Christ are really the same. They're the same words, just in different languages. Uh, Hebrew, the word is Messiah, and in Greek, it's Christos. They both mean the anointed one, the one who is anointed. Jesus, as the Christ, fulfills the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. And each of those offices, at times, were initiated by anointing. Moses anointed Aaron as the first high priest over Israel. Moses anointed Aaron to be high priest. That was in Exodus 29.7. Now, Aaron and his family were set apart for that sacred service there. As far as prophets, Elijah is commanded by God to anoint Elisha the prophet in his place. It's in 1 Kings 19:16. And of course, Samuel anoints David to be king over Israel. It's in 1 Samuel 16:13. Now, these are just the high points. There are plenty of other examples in the Old Testament. In each of these cases, somebody is anointed with oil. And in that, they are set apart for a special calling and service to God. God lays claim on their lives, and they are set apart to serve God on behalf of Israel in important ways. And here, Peter perceives that Jesus is the Christ. He is that anointed one. Jesus is the promised Messiah who will work in mighty ways for the sake of God's people. He has been promised long ago, and now he has arrived to deliver God's people. Now, I can't imagine the level of excitement that must have been buzzing about the disciples at this moment, to realize that the Christ has come, that he is right there in front of them, and that they are with him as his disciples. It must have been an exciting moment for them to have this realization. Jesus acknowledges that this is true. And he does that by saying, keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. He doesn't tell Peter, oh, no, Peter, you've gone too far. This isn't who I am. He tells them, keep it quiet. Keep it under wraps. Keep it under your hat. Uh, and in fact, here, the, the word is that, uh, that he charges them to be quiet about it. It literally means that he rebukes them to silence. Uh, we've already seen plenty of times where, as much as Jesus tells somebody to be quiet about what he's done, they don't listen. They just go out and tell it all the more. He tells them to uh, keep this reality quiet at this point. So, what do we do with this? We've seen Peter's confession, Jesus has accepted it. What do we do? I think first we marvel. God has fulfilled his promises to his people over thousands of years it's just amazing as you look throughout the Old Testament to see the promises that God makes and how he fulfills them. And sometimes he takes hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years to fulfill the promises that he made. I think it's right for us at this moment to stop and just marvel at God. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't get deterred. He's not a man or spiritual being on planet who can derail God. When he commits to do something, he will do it. He will see it through to the end. It's just amazing. Think about it. The hundreds and hundreds of years that elapsed from when God promised what he promised through his son to when he brings his son, his very precious son, into this world. But he does it. He doesn't fail to do it. And here the disciples are standing before the Christ, the one whom God has anointed. We should marvel at that. And that should give us confidence that the things that God has promised to us, he will do. Some of those things we might not see in this lifetime. But we wait. We wait in confidence that the thing that God has promised, he will do. He will not be deterred. Here he has brought his Christ. And of course, second, we should accept him as the Christ. This moment of decision and confession uh, comes to all who hear about Jesus. Will we accept Jesus as the Christ, or will we persist in our sin? All of us have had to come through that. If we're followers of Jesus, we've come to that moment. If anybody hasn't come to that moment, now is the time. Consider Jesus. Accept him as the Christ. Accept him as the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of all the peoples on this planet. As the Christ, we've got to accept him as our prophet. As the word, John will tell us, who was in the beginning with God and was God, he perfectly speaks on God's behalf. We've got to accept the teachings of Jesus as from God. God in Christ speaking to us on the behalf of God. We want to accept him in his role as the great high priest. He has been anointed to be the great high priest. The reality is, even in our walk with Christ, we stumble. And what do we do with that? We don't want to justify it. We don't want to cover up our sin. We want to take our sins to the one who is our mediator. Not just our sins, take our needs and our prayers to him, knowing that he is, Hears us. He hears every word that comes out of our mouth, and the words that we don't have the strength to speak, he hears them in our hearts. We want to forsake any attempt to to be good before God uh, in our own might. We want to trust in the sprinkled blood of Jesus, who is both the sacrifice for sins and the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice to God. We want to rest in the security of this successful mediation. Uh, of this priest, the third thing we want to do is we accept him as our Christ, is accept him uh, as our king. Of all these three offices of the Christ here: prophet, priest and king, I think the idea of king comes through most clearly in the picture of the Messiah. Now while we don 't see jesus reign visibly, we will one day. Jesus is the anointed king. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in power. You remember when Stephen, after making a good confession of his faith, before uh, his executors, essentially, he, he gets a vision of Jesus. The sky is opened and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That is where Jesus is at. He's there now. He reigns as king even though this world is full of outright rebellion. He will return one day to set this world in proper order. Live under his reign now. Don't be ashamed to live as a subject of this king, even if the world around us rejects him. He will not be ashamed of us when he returns. We will be elevated. I think a third application now, as we think about this, uh, this is a good reminder for us to be Christians who love the Old Testament. We should be Christians who love the Old Testament. God has given us his word in 66 books. 39 books comprise the Old Testament and 27 books comprise the New Testament. Now, Sometimes we might be tempted to just focus on the last 27, to just set our hearts on the New Testament and neglect the first 39 books. Now, we might think Jesus is revealed in the New Testament, so let's just stick to that. But you know, we really lose so much if we do that. That Jesus is the Christ means so much less if we don't see what, he, what God has done in the Old Testament to paint the picture of Christ as he's coming. If you want to love God and Jesus Christ more, then get to know your Old Testament better. It's the foundation on which the New Testament is firmly built. And it points us to Christ who is revealed to us as we've seen here in the Gospel of Mark. Well, the Old Testament tells us something more about the Messiah. The disciples saw many things about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and there's something they didn't see. We've talked about Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king, but there is more. There's something that Jesus understood as he read the Bible that everybody else got missed, really. Uh, We often look at passages like Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, and we see the reigning king, we see this, the son of David who's coming to rule and reign. But we don't always connect Isaiah 53, and certainly the disciples didn't see that. Let's look next at our second main point as we turn to verses 31 to 33 and see the call to accept Jesus, the humiliated and exalted Christ. You know, it's at this very moment, and all the excitement, where Peter has revealed and, and spoken, confessed that Jesus is the Christ, uh, it's at this point that Jesus drops a bomb on their conception of the Messiah. i want to read verse 31 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark also notes here that Jesus says this plainly. Now, remember, Jesus does the bulk of his teaching in parables. Jesus teaches in parables, and from some it will be concealed, to others it will be revealed. But here, Jesus says it plainly. He says the cold, hard truth as plain as can be. No parable, no metaphor, no poetry, no double entendre, no hinting comments. Jesus says it plainly. He's going to be mistreated, and he's going to be killed. And three days later, he's going to rise again. Jesus says that the very people opposing him, the Jewish leaders, will put him to death. I have to imagine that the disciples had their hearts sink down into their shoes at this moment. You know, and Peter, he's not going to take it laying down. Upon hearing this, Jesus, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, talk, we talk about Peter being brash, but wow, he rebukes Jesus at this moment. Jesus looks around. He sees that the disciples are watching. And so he turns and he rebukes Peter in in pretty painful words. He says to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now perhaps you've witnessed the conversation before that was so intense that all you could do was sit there and be quiet and see how it unfolds. Now that's where I would be if I were sitting by uh, watching this. Scott pointed out several weeks ago about what a humbling moment this must have been for Peter you know one minute he has the clarity to say that Jesus is the Christ and be commended and then at the next moment he's being called Satan by Jesus why does Jesus rebuke Peter so sharply here well I think we can be safe to say it is safe to say that it's not because Jesus is just looking for some comeback you know, it's not like Jesus' pride is hurt, and so he's just looking at something to launch back at Peter. No, I don't think that's what's going on. Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter voices the way of the world at this moment. Peter's mind is stuck on human thinking. He is lacking God's perspective in the way that he has responded to Jesus. You know, it may be that the disciples at this point only expected the Messiah to deliver Israel from her physical enemies. And if that is the case, then a dead Messiah wouldn't be very much good. Ideas of a militant Messiah were very common in the first century. We see this in the writings of the Qumran community, of the Essenes, uh, and it's beyond there. Uh, people were expecting somebody to come and take power and throw off the Romans. Now, we certainly see David, one of the, the signs That David has been raised up by the Lord is that he fights the enemies of God so we can't entirely fault them for seeing this and in truth Jesus will one day cast off all the enemies of God uh, in a very visible way but that's not how he came the first time you know it's it's interesting in Israel's history uh, we find that often Israel was her own worst enemy you know, the nations around Israel were nothing in comparison to God's might. But we see it time and again, see it through the book of Judges, through it, see it through all the history of Israel. When Israel engaged in idolatry, that brought the wrath and punishment of God down on her. You know, there is an internal problem for human beings that we've got to be delivered from. And it's worse than any external problem. That's the role of the Messiah that the disciples are missing at this point. They don't see the the internal enemy that they're coming, that he's coming to deliver them from. Remember last week? The blind man sees, but he doesn't see it yet. I think this is where the disciples are at. They see Jesus, but they don't see him yet. There's aspects they don't get. But we see here that Jesus is laboring to open their eyes to see all that they must see about him. Uh, perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that jesus tells his disciples again and again in the gospels about the fact that he's going to die and rise again you know here in verse 31 it says that here he began to teach them this Uh, he's going to tell them another couple times throughout mark's gospel about the same thing i'm sure he made even more references throughout his ministry Here we see the first time that Jesus reveals that he will be crucified and Peter's not having it. I think Jesus' rebuke is also so sharp because others are watching it. Uh, Others are watching and hearing what Peter has said and for their sake, he needs to set the record straight. He can't uh, let his message get overridden by Peter's aspirations. He speaks plainly And he doesn't want his message to get lost in Peter's static. You know, Peter's responding according to his own understanding. And that reflects the way of this world. And thus the way of Satan. Uh, But Jesus has come to be the true Messiah and Savior of Israel and of the whole world. Uh, For human beings to be saved, we need more than a warrior king. We need deliverance from our sin. And that's what happens through the priestly work of the Messiah. As he lays his life down for sins he takes our punishment upon himself he rises again in victory over sin and death you know our sin deserves death and so Jesus takes that on himself he does this wrath-bearing work on the cross and he dies for us he rises again and in that he delivers us from the thing that we could not possibly deliver ourselves from this is what he does in his role as the Christ I think it might be easy for us to look at this and see the disciples and Peter getting rebuked by Jesus and think, you know, they should have gotten it. Maybe maybe they should have gotten it earlier. But, you know, we've got the advantage of having the end of the story. You know, they're learning it the hard way, so to speak. We have the advantage of having them tell us about these less than flattering moments. And I think as we read this story what we ought to do is take stock of ourselves. You know, we could ask ourselves, how are we prone to see Jesus the way that we want to see him rather than how he really is? What, what's our own temptations to conform Jesus to what we would like him to be uh, more than who he is? Some liberal theologians in the 1980s and 90s sought to find the real historical Jesus. They... Believe this or not, they went through the Gospels and they took all of the sayings of Jesus and then they got together and they voted. Is this a real saying of Jesus or not? Uh, I kid you not, this is a real thing. It was, called, it was called the Jesus Seminar. You can look it up. Don't spend too much time on it. Uh, started in 1985 by a man named Robert Funk. And they, they had the audacity to look through the sayings of Jesus and say, I think this is something that Jesus really said and something else no i I think this is something that somebody else read into the words of jesus Uh, you know they pulled a thomas jefferson and they cut out the parts of the bible that they didn't think should be there one critic of this movement said that at the end of the day the jesus they were left with was one that looked a lot like them you know it's right for us to condemn this this is ridiculous Uh, and yet we have our own way of doing this in less audacious ways you know i I think we tend to gravitate towards the things from jesus that we like and it's easy to make light of the things we don't it's easy for us to accept the comfortable words of jesus for us and to brush over the words that make us uncomfortable we might capitalize on Jesus' words about the Father's care for us, which we should cherish, we should accept those from Jesus, but we might minimize where Jesus calls us to forgive 70 times 7. That's a hard word. We might neglect his call to love and pray for our enemies. That's a hard word from Jesus. Sometimes the person and the teaching of Jesus might not jive with what we expect of him, what we might expect him to say or to do, but you know that's okay. When you come to the scriptures and something about Jesus hits you sideways, accept that as a gift. (laughs) Accept that as a gift from God as he's revealing himself to you. Pray for wisdom and clarity. Pray that God would help you to see him rightly. We want to know Jesus and we want to press on to know him more. We want to accept him as he is revealed in the scriptures. We want to come back to our question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? People around us have all sorts of thoughts about Jesus. Thoughts about who he is or who he should be. But who do you say he is? This text supplies us with a faithful answer. He is the Christ, and we should embrace him as our crucified and risen Messiah. Well, as Erica comes to play and the men prepare for communion, let's go to prayer together.